there's no better course. So, and cross country skiing is meant to be hard. Uh, really fun race. And hi, I'm Rosie Frankowski from AP. See, here we have with the hero Bjorn Daly. That's the great thing about sport. Make it rain. Make make it rain. You play to win. It is. I mean, that's that's our sport. So. Toughen up, train harder, and get in that pack and make it rain. Make it rain. Make it make it rain. First of all, excuse me, West. Make it rain. I have paraffin ironed onto it once in a while. Make it rain. You see, the critic of air must use air to make a case against air. The fact that he's able to make an argument at all proves that he's wrong. And from that, I, it's sort of up to me to pick the ones that I really like, which is, can't be super hard at that time. Yeah. I'm sure you have experience with testing two very nice pairs of skis, you know, that they feel exactly the same. Really. Let's go. Ain't no way they can stop me now, Daddy, because I'm on my way. I can feel my way. On the backstretch, it is Mellon and Richardson. Deep inside my veins, you must ride to be running. I'm going to get what I can and more, even if my blood, my sweat, and my tears don't mean nothing. Okay. My best advice to you, shut up. You're welcome. You're welcome. No, it wasn't playing me like it. You shut up. It's just like, if you want to talk to me outside, I'm more than happy to talk to you. Talk about that. Bumble like Michael Ray. Tell him again. It's bumble like Michael Ray. Hear what I said. The Twins are going to win the World Series. The Twins have won it. It's a base hit. It's a one nothing. During the race, she heard me. I'm very flattered about that. <laughs> you are skiing very wise. You know, we're gonna have to work hard. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to train hard. But you know, this, this group has got a has got an already work ethic. You know, so that's not gonna be the problem. All right, welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. Broadcasting live from Leadville, Colorado, on Shovel Lake Public Radio. We'll post this on cedarskier.com, your favorites. Um, I think, did anyone catch the Ben Ogden quote that I used from a previous show uh, where he says, I'm sure you have a lot of experience testing out many, many pairs of really high-level skis. Um, If you are not aware of why that's humorous, uh, you're not a true cedarskier.com fan. And... uh, just wanted to say that. Just want to throw that out there. Uh, but at, speaking of skis, speaking of high-level skis, my story of the day that I will say before we get into this show and its topics is that just the other day, I carefully scraped off the storage wax of a brand new set of planks that I purchased from Zach Ketterson, um, and I used them in a double-pull workout. And I will say, it uh, it felt unfair using Speedmax 
Fisher Speedmax. First time I've ever been on a top-of-the-line ski, actually. I've never... No, I, I take that back. I did test out a Speedmax skate once, like two kilometers. But um, this is the first... So the second time, I guess. Oh, I'm going to talk about that more in the show, but there's my... I, I maybe, maybe pretty soon, Ben will be right in saying that I do have lots of experience. So this is the coolest, hippest, hottest skiing podcast in the nation. I don't know if you knew that yet. Um, we are getting so popular, they're, they're threatening to shut us down. Uh, and this show that I, I'm uh, releasing today, it's coming at you. When I say live, that's that's really hypocritical. That's really a lie now. I mean, it's always a lie, kind of. A shovel like public radio. They're so gracious to air us, uh, even if it's tape delayed. And today is especially a delay because we had this great episode. Seventy-five percent of it was complete. It was talking about the tour de ski. Remember when that was the tour de ski? Remember when that was really hot, right? And Jess Diggins was this uh, this shining light in the Nordic ski world. Well, uh, I don't know about you, but I was listening to the Nordic Nation, the FasterSkier.com podcast, really getting a kick out of it. I think Jason and Devin are hitting hitting their stride now, right? Like they are the Regis and Kelly of the morning of. Uh, Nordic ski podcasting at this point. So I was really enjoying listening to all of their shows um, post tour to ski days. It was fun. I don't know if Jason particularly liked it. It kind of sounded like he was getting, well, actually the, the start times aren't as bad for tour to ski. So he did make mention of that, that it's not as bad as normally when he has to get up at like, you know, 1am and, and write those reports, which I will say this, I know he's kind of, he has to do that, but how many of you are a ski fan? You got to watch the tape delay of a World Cup event. And so you wake up, you know, maybe if it's 6 a.m., 7 a.m. on a Saturday or whatever, and you're like, All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch this event. It was tape delayed. I don't want to know the answer. And you are scrolling on Facebook or something, and then you have, you're following Faster Skier. You're following something else. You see a headline, and it just ruins it because now, okay, I know who won, or I know top three. That happened to me a couple of times. Uh, with with this, but but the podcast, Faster Skiers podcast, were really engaging anyway. So I wanted to interact with that, and that was the goal of this show. It was supposed to be an interaction with like I don't know this 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 show came from like the third day, but that was the whole point of the of the show. And then I had to uh, take like two weeks off, and and here it is. So this show that's coming at you is really two weeks in the making. I hope you enjoy it. Cedarskier.com. Test one two three. Welcome to the Cedar Skier podcast. I am your host Ryan Cedarquist. And we are here, we're actually going to talk about skiing today. Quite a bit of topics to cover. Uh, out on my morning ski this morning, actually, I was listening to the Devin Kershaw show. Uh, I see they've put out now a couple after each stage of the Tour de Ski, but I just caught the one post-stage three. So if you are slow to um, to the news there, what you may not have heard is Jess Diggins went and Rosie Brennan went one, two. Um, so really awesome showing for the women. And now Jess Diggins is in the overall lead in the tour de ski. And basically now on the women's field, we got Finland and Sweden back in there. So Norway is still not there, but this is, um, some pretty legitimate performances. I would say, I mean, the, the Swedish women are no joke. Uh, Definitely the number two team. I, I don't know. I guess I'm not super deep dived in, but on the sprinting side, I think they came into this season as the favorites. Um, so basically, you know, even if even if you threw in five Norwegian female skiers in front of both Diggins and and Brennan to to be fifth and sixth is 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 pretty remarkable too. So, I mean, great performances on the women's side. 
So anyway, I didn't want to get too distracted there, but that was what the show's topic was about. And so listen to that and, and just really enjoyed it, uh, really enjoyed the podcast, which uh, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Kershaw is, uh, I'm starting to like him a little bit more uh, in terms of some of his takes, how he, pre- well, he's he he's pretty fair, you know, in all these controversial topics from when Norway bowed out, you know, he was, he was very very uh vocal as an advocate for safety for athletes but also the americans and these other countries who are choosing to ski they are doing what they think is best and you know ultimately we need to not not just get in so many people's faces if they want to make choice a or b we don't need to be critical of them which i thought was uh kind of a fresh a fresh voice in this whole situation because there there's definitely been voices um on both ends of the spectrum whether it's just let's just go back to normal full bore everything and if you don't agree with me you're a nutcase and on the other side you know we should be locked up canceling sports till 2020 and if you don't agree with me you're a nutcase um so i, I appreciate kershaw being a, an energetic voice for um his line of reasoning at least is let's let people make their decision and not crawl all over their <laughs> crawl under their skin for it um so he's been reasonable on that and and I, and I liked uh, some of his takes of course he's an incredible knowledge wealth of knowledge for um, what the world cup's like it's a, it's cool having him on the show and and they can ask him the tough questions and and he kind of says it how it is so that is also awesome. and he's credible you know he's done things in the world cup um that are remarkable for a North American male. So anyway, I enjoyed the show a lot and thought, I really want to respond to some of the things they brought up. Their topics were awesome, but I also have other topics, cedar skier topics on the show. So it's kind of exhausting me just even thinking about it here. So today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about the Tour to Ski Devin Kershaw Kershaw show. We're going to respond to a few different topics from that. Hopefully you will enjoy that. We've got some clips to play as well. I also received writer mail on my website, which is is a thrill. You know, maybe this thing is actually going to grow and take off and we'll be truly the fastest growing ski podcast in the world. Who knows? But I received writer mail that I think is of interest regarding um, the concept ski erg. I wanted to give us some marathon race news and or updates. We are kind of now it's 2021. We're in the new year. Like there, the race season is upon us, I guess is what to say, you know, and and I think it's kind of felt like everyone was living in a cloud October, November, December, like, well, it might not even really happen. You know, we sort of had a low snow year as well, I think, in parts of the country. So, you know, people kind of getting to their skis late, just uh, maybe thinking, well, this isn't a normal year on any any accounts. So I'm not going to pay a crazy fee to get in a race anyway. It might not be worth it, this or that. And uh, uh, now it's here. It's all of a sudden it's here and some people are going. So some stuff is canceled. Some stuff is virtual. Some stuff is well, there's a whole there's a whole <laughs> a whole spectrum of things that marathons are doing. So we kind of wanted to highlight some of those and, and then just also talk about 2020. We have some, you know, the ups and downs of the 2020 year personally, um, also from a ski standpoint on the the world cup in america we've got some predictions coming up and then also we're just talking sports in general we have our recaps and sports predictions so all those things are on today's show of the cedar skier podcast i don't know how we want to get started but let's take a quick break to remember one of our key sponsors 
Hey guys, Ryan Cedarquist here. You've probably been stunned by all the craziness going on in our world today. It seems like there's just so much uncertainty, right? Well, let me tell you about something you can count on. Dependable, reliable, trustworthy. And no, I'm not talking about the Minnesota Vikings offensive line. I mean, I wish I was, right? But actually, I'm talking about the U.S. Ski Pole Company. Well, other Nordic brands are making boots, poles, gloves, clothes, and everything. You know, they've got their hands full with all these different products. Andy and the folks at USSPC focus on one thing and one thing only, ski poles. And this allows them to do that right. Their product is American-made, every part of it, from the grip to the tip. In fact, that's probably why I was able to put in about 350 hours of roller skiing before I even had to sharpen those tips. Let's just say you're not going to get that kind of experience on those cheap tips on other poles, that's for sure. If you think the guy making these poles is just some sort of eccentric ski nerd who has never actually been out and pounded the pavement or V2'd up Holman Collins Hills, you're only about half right. Andy is kind of crazy, but crazy innovative, crazy bold, and crazy intense about delivering a top-notch product and caring for every individual customer. And he's got a bit of a race career as well. You know, between Andy and the Cedar Skier, we have won exactly one World Lobit Marathon. So that's pretty awesome. My suggestion, get in touch with the U.S. Ski Pole Company by visiting their website or reaching out to a local rep. Hey, that's me. You can comment on my Facebook page where I post this show or comment on the show where it's posted at cedarskier.com and I'll get you set up with a pair of custom skis just like I've got. If you're in the market for something for the kids, maybe you should try out USSPC's adjustable poles. You know, I was even skeptical about the durability uh, of these guys, but Andy let me test them out here in Leadville. And even on a 16-mile double pole session up the mineral belt, my adjustable Freedom Golds felt just like any other pole and performed exactly like any other top-notch piece of equipment I have ever used, summer or winter. Again, if you have any interest, please reach out. This is why I'm hot. This is why I'm hot. This is why. This is why. This is why I'm hot. This All right, welcome back to the Senior Scare Podcast. I think it's time for us to uh, really dive into this, into the real meat of the content here. So let's get that rolling. So I wrote notes on topics, but then I discovered that I could actually download and get the sound clips that I wanted to into our show. So I thought instead of uh, trying to summarize and then respond to the arguments and the topics discussed on the Faster Skier show, that I would just play it and then talk about it. So if I miss something, I might just have to bring it up, but we're going to start off fresh. This is from January 3rd's episode brought to you by Faster Skier. The first clip is from a letter that Faster Skier received. So Devin Kershaw is going to explain what exactly was in that letter. I'm too hard on the Swedish men. I'm not hard enough on the American men. And then there was references from like 70s movies. So I think we might have to just save that audio because it's kind of cool and different. Uh, basically, Faster Skier gets the hate email to Devin Kershaw. Why are you so hard on the Swedish men? Why don't you give the U.S. men the same sort of grief? And and his response is sort of twofold, right? He he basically talks about how, well, we're, we're dealing with two different teams here. The Swedes, if you look back at the history of Nordic skiing and the history of the Olympic Games, they've always been extremely relevant, um, and they've always had someone in the pipeline, and they, you know, they've kind of been Norway 2.0, um, not quite as 
good as Norway. If the, if Norway is the New York Yankees, the Swedes are the Boston Red Sox. There is something there. Meanwhile, the Americans are more like the FM Red Hawks, you know, of the Northern League. Or um, what are some Ralph? Look up some good names. Those <laughs> those good lower lower uh, class uh, baseball team names. The only reason I'm they were comparing it, you know, saying uh, saying they were like the Swedes and Norwegians, like the Yankees. So the, the, the Americans would be like the Montgomery Biscuits, or maybe the Jamestown Jammers, or possibly even, you know, they'd be more like the Savannah Sand Nats. You know, Savannah Sand. Do we have a few more? Okay, good. Uh, Auburn Double. That was Auburn Double Days. Isn't really that weird, is it? Uh, Omaha Storm Chasers. The West Tennessee Diamond Jacks, Jack spelled J-A-X-X, duh. Colorado Springs Sky Sox. How about the Quad City River Bandits or the Richmond Flying Squirrels? You know, we got the 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 Toledo Mud Hens. Now I'm just having fun reading some of these funny names. Uh, the Albuquerque Isotopes. Are you kidding me? What in the... <laughs> Oh, uh, what's the number one? The Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. So basically, you know, his argument is saying uh, the reason you, you can be harder on the Swedes, obviously, is because it's like the Red Sox having a losing season. It's not quite the same thing as the Pittsburgh Pirates having a losing season. Okay, so up in arms. The expectation is there. And the other guys on the show kind of mentioned that. I, I totally agree. And then he gives his reason. You want to know why I'm not chirping the American distance men so hard right now? I'll tell you one thing and two reasons why back to back world junior relay champions in the men's field. So to say that they're not performing on the world cup right now, that there's no question in distance. They're not, they're far from good enough. But when you win the men's relay at world juniors two years in a row, you have guys in the pipeline that aren't just good, they have a potential that the U.S. distance skiing has not seen probably since like the Bill Koch era. I'm not saying that's going to translate into senior results. Who knows? But back-to-back World Junior gold in the relay, is a, that is a crazy stat. Even though World Juniors doesn't mean the be, isn't the be-all, end-all, especially with senior racing. Okay. I like, again, Kershaw, good take there. Um I think he's he's first of all right in saying that it's not the be all end all. We don't know if this will translate. Okay, I think we understand that, but I think it's also it is important for that general fan who's watching and kind of going, yeah, more of the same old. The men aren't aren't even close. We didn't even have them qualify for the rounds. Blah blah blah. And he's saying, but this is something that's different too. You know, we haven't had back to back World Junior Championships. Now, I do tend to think that on the world uh, stage, though, they the Russians and the Norwegians really don't care about the back-to-back World Junior Championships. Maybe I'm totally wrong, but I think, you know, when Bolshinov, who's not that old, is beating our best up-and-comer, our LeBron James, by three minutes in a 15K, um, I think he he doesn't really care all that much about those two uh, World Junior Relay medals or even Schumacher's 10K individual. I mean, at the same age, Bolshinov was... Uh, doing similar things on the World Cup. And that's also a fair thing to say that, well, yeah, okay, those are two two completely different cases. We have studs, and we've had studs too in the Americans, right? Jesse Diggins kind of, uh, and he mentions this in the show later, she came on young and did some incredible things on the World Cup, had good performances. So I, I think 
what we should recognize is these are two different types of athletes. The men have been way, way down in the dumps for a while, and now we um, bring we ha- we have some sort of reason for our hope, uh, I guess it, to say as a, as a ski fan, there is there is at least a, a new unique reason for our hope. I will say I think I think the the American men do get. Um, and I'm when I'm saying American men, I should say those athletes in the '90s, early 2000s, they get thrown maybe too much shade too. There were some pretty phenomenal performances, and I liked this show. They brought up Carl Swenson, Chris Freeman, a couple of fourth place finishes. Um, I think sometimes we're too quick in the the ski journalism to just say, "Well, the American men have really not seen the light of day in decades," you know, or you know, we, we've just been a completely irrelevant team. That that is diminishing, I think, to some of those breakthrough performances. But at the same time, I think we do have to agree. Like uh, the expectation, we're nowhere near what USA Track and Field is, right? I mean, USA Track and Field is going to win. Uh, a dozen or more gold medals at every Olympics, you know, and, and half a dozen times we will take all three. So uh, gold, silver, bronze in some events. So, I mean, as a program on the world stage, yeah, we get it. We're not at Norway. I think the the thing that I would like to bring up, and this is where I think uh, these guys kind of have it wrong and maybe our whole ski uh, culture has wrong, but I'm hoping Coach Wickham, the head coaches, and the athletes themselves understand this. And that is that the ultimate, at the end of the day, limiting factor, I believe, for our crew is not a lack of funding. It's not a lack of, lack of funding across the pipeline because they talk about, like, well, what about our B athletes not getting paid for or, you know, it's not supported enough. It's, it doesn't have to do with that. doesn't have to do with wax strength, ski quality. Um, it doesn't even have to do with training. I, uh, I think the ultimate change is one of, I guess, belief. Uh, belief in the culture, belief in in everything that's happening, belief that you can be relevant. And then once, because, well, and the reason I say that is look at the women's side. The women were not in the 80s and 90s winning a bunch of medals, and then along came Diggins and Keegan Randall. Okay, so that was also had a background, a history, athletes who did many things that sort of paved the way for the 2018 Relay Gold. I'm not diminishing those athletes either, but what I'm saying is look at this evidence. Once a couple of girls made the the ultimate visual, visible breakthrough, then the the expectation has been forever changed. So I think it's it's worth our we should honor these athletes of our past who have been um, setting the foundation for us, and they have done truly remarkable athletic feats in and of themselves. You know, even on the show we had Jim Glanis on here, and and looking back at some of his old races on YouTube, it was phenomenal. If you compare times back and forth, some of the things they were doing t- compared to today's athletes. Uh, these were these were elite world class athletes too. It's it's not we're not coming on here saying we were irrelevant. All of a sudden, Jess Diggins won a gold medal. The past didn't determine didn't uh, influence that at all. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is once there was a a, a clear visible, hey, we can do this. We're capable of it. Um, you're starting to see more people in the pipeline at all ages believe that they can be relevant. So I think that is kind of the ultimate thing. The reason and. And so that's the first reason I would say my idea could be correct is we've actually have evidence of that on the women's side. We have evidence that once people make breakthroughs, the belief changes. 
Okay. The second reason I would say that is, is I'll look and point to another group of um, very um, financially not taken care of athletes. That was a weird way of saying that. But, but again, look at USA track and field. There are very few athletes, three, four. We have Allison Felix, the top male sprinter, um, sometimes the top decathlete, um, almost never the top distance runner. You know, Rupp has had to be the generational athlete of a lifetime to, to, to where we can say, yeah, he's probably a millionaire, <laughs> but he's not making what Klabo is making in Norway. Uh, but all those athletes, our team is, is made up of people who are elite world-class athletes that are probably making between 40 and 80, probably less than that, 40 to $60,000 a year from running. And they are either having other jobs, um, supported in different ways, or just kind of they're young and they don't need that much money, uh, for it because they're stage of life. And then they become parents and they retire. So that program is the the clear cut dominant program in the world, um, and and uh, Kenyans, Ethiopians, better distance programs than the U.S. Right? Uh, Jamaicans typically better male and female sprinters in the short sprints, but our USA track and field team is the overall most dominant um, track and field team in the world, and and I they are they have so many issues with funding. Their governing body is a mess, and journalists, running journalists, running diehards. They know it. They talk about it. They belabor it. It's a very crooked system. It's very messed up. <laughs> okay, and they're doing fine on a performance stage. I think the reason for that is much more a belief culture aspect. Um, I think our athletes are are training hard. I think they have proper training methods. Now, is there a nuance there? Of course. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that episode we talked with Jim about. You know, those those are those are fun to dive into too because I think there's something there. Um, but but broadly, impactfully speaking, um, I think it's too simple to just say, well, if we trained just like the Norwegians with the exact same programs, in the, even in the exact same environment, then we'd be just as good as them. I don't buy that. And I also think you can't really with skiing go, well, if the LeBron James skied, we'd be the best, but our best athletes don't do Nordic skiing, kind of like the soccer argument. I think that works for soccer because we have college football, NCAA college football, we have the NFL. I think there's that that would translate more. You might see running backs, um, wide receivers, athletes like that who would play soccer if it was the biggest deal and the biggest money maker, but it's not. Okay, so that that argument does not work here. Um, so it's it's not just it's not just athletes. I think I think those things though, uh, whether it is um, f- like funding, training, the fact that we got to go over there and stay for four months, those are all impactful. They they definitely have an impact on our performance on the World Cup, no question. Uh, but but the key the key thing that needs to happen is is belief that is manifested and then spread. And we saw that with the women, and I think it's an impacted our women's program, and that's kind of the momentum is going. And I think um, ultimately with the men, the performance on the World Juniors has actually done some of, somewhat of a similar thing. Um, but I, I kind of suspect that European racers are looking at it like, oh, look at those Americans. They're starting to believe in this, like it's a really big deal. And now they can do great things. They, they don't really realize they're, they're so naive. They don't really realize that a world junior goal doesn't really mean that much, you know, but, but I'll say, Hey, if it, if it impacts the belief, which shifts the culture in our country, it's not going to matter because, because if we believe on false grounds, 
even. If our false grounds of believing that, that the World Junior Championships meant a lot leads to we, us getting a bunch more young males who are, who are going hard, doing all the right things to do, coming up through the pipeline, uh, and we just grow that number and that talent base, we will be relevant on the World Cup eventually. So I, I think it's, it's kind of catch-22 a little bit. Like on, on my side, I think I don't know how much those World Juniors, Junior Championships matter in terms of evidence, evidence of a breakthrough, but they might be the only visual representation we need as a country to get the momentum rolling. Um, and, and, and a good point that was brought up in the show, too, talking about the, the male teams in the 90s and the, and the early 2000s, which I can't verify this, but and maybe this is true, but Devin was kind of mentioning how back then we had really, you know, talented athletes, but they weren't as cohesive as a unit. You know, everyone was, he, he kind of talked about how everyone was off doing their own thing, training, racing, had you know, different plans and schedules. They weren't really unified. Well, we definitely see that as a difference between this group. Uh, I, t- I talked to, you know, Ben Ogden on the show earlier in the spring, and that was something he seemed really you know he brings up all the time it's like yeah this group of guys right and and their pals and they're playing video games in the uh in 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 the dorm rooms and world juniors and they miss each other when they don't get to see each other on training camps and when they're together it's like the you know like there's that there's that camaraderie and the belief in what they're doing is being uh the on the right track again belief even in their training and their racing and their plan you know, they're behind it. There isn't this sense of doubt, like, I don't know if Coach Wickham has us really doing the right thing, or we should be doing more of this, or this guy says I should do that, or I don't really like this athlete on the team because he believes this or does that. You know, all of those things um, seem to be kind of eliminated. So I think that is critical for for an eventual breakthrough, and, and we do have to be patient. You know, these, these sports uh, operate differently. Uh, than other endurance or not other endurance but other sports and we are seeing more and more now where people are making breakthroughs above the age of 30 and we're seeing it this year a ton with Rosie Brennan so I think that's encouraging and if there's any piece of the governing body maybe need to taking an action step financially it's that we should recognize um, an athlete's career looks differently than it did in even 20 years ago whereas maybe it was wise if an athlete wasn't wasn't starting to blossom by 26 27 that we didn't try to um kind of keep them in the loop um you know jim kind of talked about that too about how what happens if you have a bad year in the world cup you just are you off the u.s ski team that is kind of a question that we do have an issue here um, and that that is that's one of money. That's where you could you could kind of debunk my argument, I guess, and kind of go, well, I, th- I kind of think you're wrong. You know, at the end of the day, money really talks. If you if you throw enough money at it, they'll be good. Uh, maybe, maybe. But again, it's going to be the reason the money is even going to be effective is it's going to bring more people together. And then once those people start to believe the, the strength of that belief will be stronger because there are more people and better equipment. And so, again, I think belief in and of itself is going to be the turning point that that ultimately will shift this culture it might manifest itself in other ways but i I feel like i've kind of identified the undergirding foundation that's what we do here right we got skeologians got to get to the bottom of these things um so there whether well there's maybe a place for argumentation and nuance on topics like training physiology um uh, issues with finance structure of the national governing bodies i think those are all worthwhile discussions Uh, i do and i think they they can really halt and limit the advancement for athletes if nothing else um but uh so the question we might have to be asking is are do we have a healthy enough 
system with all those factors to produce quality results. Um, and I think the jury is still out on that. But man, these coaches seem pretty sweet. They seem like sweet guys. The uh, I, I know that's that's not that's not a way we just go. Well, they must uh, the, then results will come. That's not really what I mean. But they have cre- They seem to have created a team culture that that is awesome. The, this the U.S. ski team would be a fun team to be on. Um, and I think that's important too. And part of the you know the enjoyment and fun isn't mutually exclusive from it training hard and having outrageously high expectations and goals. And that's good. Okay, I went a little bit longer on that one. Probably bled into some different topics. Let's go to the next clip that I wanted to chat about. A thing I, I think some people or many people will like ding the U.S. ski team for is like, um, you know, they're not investing any money in like people who are supposed to be podium contenders right now like with the on the men's side with the exception of like I just pulled up the the team roster like Simi Hamilton is the only man on the U.S. ski team a team like I I think the U.S. ski team has like a long history of like being ruthless with their decision making around like where do we invest in the pipeline and I think you know for better or worse and there are, there are arguments that, you know, this is problematic, but there are also arguments that this is the only way to run a program if you're resource limited in the way that the U.S. ski team is limited. Like, they they just, like, they do not put money into people, like, over 25 um, that basically, like, you know, aren't on the trajectory of, like, a Gus Schumacher or, you know, I don't know what the, you know, maybe like a... a um, Haley Swirbel on the women's side. It's just like they are. This is sort of a conscious choice. And I think if you asked the the coaches in the administration of the U.S. ski team, like what we should have expected from the U.S. men on the circuit this year, it's I, I you know I don't think they would have said expect great things, expect us to be contending for the podium. Whereas I think with a team like Sweden, that's sort of an expectation. I you know I don't know what you guys it think should about be, that. and it is. No, it is, and it is an expectation. It is with Sweden. Just to clarify, and I should know this off the top of my head, and I, I do not. I apologize. Um, and I can hear Chris Grover right now probably saying this, that the B team gets equal funding. God, I hope I, I could be misstating that. But I think at this point, yeah, I'm not 100% sure. So I, I think with travel, I think with travel, that's where, that's where there, is, there is definitely some discrepancies with travel because with with the u.s and in canada um some trips if you're not on the a team you have to cover some costs and as a north american athlete the travel can really really uh start to add up but the thing is is the nnf and the programming behind that um does such a great job it it started as a stopgap, but now i mean through the past few years not just few years the the past number of years nnf has, has been able to fund a lot of a lot of those B team athletes that that have been able to go over and race the World Cup and also and also race at World Juniors because those those or under twenty threes those trips also cost a lot of money especially for North American athletes. So, okay, I so again that whole clip kind of covered some of those things about is is finances really the ultimate thing? I would say no, but I think it it is huge and it can be yeah. Obviously, you throw a bunch of money at something, it's gonna. It's going to be different than if you if you deprive it of it. Here's something that I kind of don't know if I really am thrilled about, always hearing about, kind of tires me a little bit, is when we hear ski athletes in particular talk about needing to raise 50 grand uh, just for my season. You know, 
Um, if we add up plane tickets, ideal living conditions, even even just moderately ideal living conditions, the cost of wax, um, things like that, I can see how that number is a very high number. But but I think the the part that bothers me is that two things that that there's no way you couldn't arrive at that high of a number and then secondly that it would be assumed that this is not something that I'm going to need to figure out on my own um so the first thing on that is you can travel even internationally very cheaply <laughs> now I get it this is this is a country's national team so um this this I'm not advocating for everyone's got their own Airbnb everyone's got their own flight I don't think we need to go that far okay I'm not not saying that but some athletes if you are um let's say you're a a premier NCAA athlete you're graduating you want to try and make the U.S. ski team okay that's not really that different than if you are your 15th place at the NCAA D1 cross country race and you want to be a pro runner Okay, when you leave college, you've got nothing lined up. Most people, right? You're not Drew Hunter. Let's just say that scenario, right? There, there's no shoe company there, or maybe there's a shoe company that they're willing to give you free shoes and ten thousand dollars, right? Something more kind of just a baseline thing. Okay, you're fighting for your life. You're gonna, you're gonna go to Flagstaff on your own dime to train. You're gonna find, figure out a place to live, a job that's gonna just get you, get you surviving, whether you use your college degree or not. You know, be a teacher, work at a bank. Uh, maybe you only work ten or fifteen hours a week because you really want more time to rest. Whatever it is. Okay, those athletes that really make up the the base of our athletes, they have to kind of figure those things out on their own. And I don't think they're they might have a number like fifty grand is is probably what I need. But I feel like that fifty grand is more like, well, if I was just living a normal life and paying bills, renting an apartment, buying food, owning a car, like I'm going to need somewhere between twenty and fifty thousand dollars to do that comfortably, depending on where I'm living. You know, so. I, I don't know. It, it That number just seems like, to me, I want to just say, you know what, maybe you should consider doing is working a full-time 40-hour-a-week job, which will get you that money, and you can train around that for the last century. Um, many, many Olympic gold medalists have worked 40-hour-a-week jobs. We don't need to go through some of the most crazy ones, but like Steve Jones, uh, most of the Finnish people, <laughs> even Kenyans and Ethiopians today um, have, have gone that route. And I feel like in, a, in, in skiing in North America, if there's one thing I really got to knock on, on our guys is like sometimes this expectation that I need to be skiing and, and have no other responsibilities. And actually, on that point, I think Sadie Bjornsson kind of took a different route this year, right? And she's kind of, I th- either she went back to school or she's actually working like a um, a job in business in some some regards. But but she kind of mentioned in an article I read that like that balance has really actually kind of improved all aspects. And, and I think generally speaking, that is the case when we counterbalance um, our training with other responsibilities and other jobs and other things that our training is also better. So could we be, is, is NNF bad? No, what they're doing for their B team athletes is awesome. The, what they're, what's enabling them to do is great. And, and I think what I'm probably somewhat unaware of is they're in skiing. They're sort of this middle group. We have our, our A team and they should be, they should kind of get all the bells and whistles and be provided for. They shouldn't have to be thinking about, 
uh, where my next meal is and I need to sleep in a van in order to be on the U.S. ski team. That should not be the case. Our top 10 to 15 athletes should be able to focus on skiing 100% of the time and make a reasonable or above reasonable living in doing so. That should be there. Those structures should kind of be in place. That's that's kind of how it is in track and field too, where I was going. Our top athletes, they might they might have to work some sort of job, but they can focus enough on skiing that that's their primary focus. I think that's fine. And then I think coming out of college, I think, hey, dude, you're kind of on your own. You know, if you want to do the Andy Liebner and get a van, go over to Germany, see what it's like in Europe, and train and race and try to be the best you can be, do it. You should. But you're gonna have to figure that out. Like we we don't have grants for. Um, people coming out of Ivy League schools to, <laughs> here you go, here's your $200,000, you know, go to Europe and blah, blah, blah. And then you've got kind of athletes in the middle who they're not, they're not quite on the A, they're not, they're not really in that college sphere. And those are the athletes I think that like, it's a weird situation. Is there a way we can just kind of get rid of that somehow? Like, is that necessary um, to have them sort of sitting in this gap of I'm too good of a skier to consider I'm, I'm, I'm good enough. I should say it this way. I'm good enough of a skier that I don't really want to go and become a fourth grade teacher and try to train on my own. Um, but I'm not good enough to be fully supported. Like I think they're there that, that sort of athlete needs to somehow be not weeded out, but it's a weird situation when we're trying to like fund their athletic pursuits kind of, that are not completely justified. And when I say completely justified, I guess I mean uh, if you're an Olympian, you're completely justified in your in us supporting your your pursuits financially. But if you're not, are you really? You know, like you're basically just a better version of those NCA skiers or NCA runners that that had great college careers and are are probably world class potential. You know, but like, yeah, I don't know. I th- I think. That problem needs to be solved somewhat more on the club community level, ultimately. Like, we shouldn't be worrying so much on a national foundation. I think that's kind of how it is in Norway, too. Like, you've got all these clubs that are well-supported, community-supported, and so you can have athletes that are are training at a very, very high level at at, at the post-collegiate age and also taking maybe post-grad classes or other things like that. And that's not to say, I'm, I, if it sounds like, maybe I just came across, like, what well, does Cedar, Cedar, Cedar Course basically believe that every post-collegiate skier is just... Just like only skiing, taking pictures on Instagram, and then demanding fifty thousand dollars. Yes, that is. No, it's not. It's not. I know that. You know, mm. APU has has systems kind of set in place that they can study, they can do things, um, uh, and and progress their post skiing aspirations as well. So, I, I sorry skiers if I'm like offending you there. I'm I'm simply I'm trying to talk through these things in my head. Like, yeah, I. Ultimately, I don't think money is the issue because we've seen unbelievable American teams in other sports also have similar problems from a financial standpoint. Uh, And I think ultimately it's a culture thing, which again, going back to the original thing, I think it's very reasonable on that standpoint to be really giving the Swedes a hard time because skiing is their bread and butter. You know, it, it probably the best example, honestly, the closest thing we had in America was in 2004 when our U.S. Olympic men's basketball team went to Athens and got a bronze medal. It was a crisis. And USA Basketball, all hands on deck. Greg Popovich is coming. Coach K is coming. Kobe Bryant's on the team. Oh, wait, we just destroyed the world. 2012, we destroyed them again. 2016, it was kind of like... Again, we had everything in place. We were dominating. We had a little bit harder time, I think, in 2060, but we still won. 
that's more like if if we had showed up at, at an Olympics and gotten like tenth, right? You'd be that's a little more what that Swede situation is like. All right, another thing I wanted to talk to talk about in this show. Second quote, it's about climbing, and they brought up a quote from Simi Hamilton. I love Kershaw's response, but I have to comment about their take on hill climbing as being, quote, part of the sport. And I should pull this up, but there was a, a, a comment along with it from Simi, something like, you know, Fist should get rid of these five-minute climbs. It's killing the sport. Um and so I go back and forth on that. Like, again, I, I sort of like those hypnotic images. I kind of love watching a skier or a cyclist for that matter, you know, on a long climb. What's their form look like? How steep is it? How, how do I relate to it? Um, but is the course, you know, what it's essentially like we've had uh, the past two distance races where it's a long climb and then kind of a sinuous descent. Does that kill the sport, Devin? No, I mean, God, absolutely not. Also, Valmuchter is an easy course. Wah, wah. I mean, that course is, is so easy. I mean, you don't have any big walls. The, the, the climb, yeah, it's like 1.25 kilometers up a valley. Okay, is this not some serious chirping on the part of Devin Kershaw? Just unbelievable. I love it. I love it. I love that he's just barking right at Simi Hamilton. Wow, wow. If this was ESPN and we were talking basketball, football, there was this would be like the most epic Twitter Instagram war of all time, I think. But I love it. I'm I'm kind of with Kershaw to be honest. And Simi's a great athlete, but I'm I I have to say it's like what this is the sport. This is what you signed up for. This is what it's about. So uh, let's hear him elaborate. Keep going. Give me a break. I mean, that's not hard. You want a hard course? Go to Sochi. You know, that's the hardest course ever created. And then you want a, the hardest course in the current World Cup. It means Lillehammer, hands down. Uh, you have a climb in there that's like four and a half minutes in the back. And and I'm with you, Jason. I mean, like this is cross-country skiing, man. I'm pretty sure there are some places in Lillehammer on the course where they set classic tracks. And if you don't have some sort of um, revolutionary grip wax you're just you literally can't climb it it's just ridiculous like go ski some old school courses like used to be called the rec 15 or the special 15 in camor that were the 88 olympic trails were i mean those courses were beasts you're talking we're complaining about five minute climbs like here in lillehammer you have the 94 olympic courses that they groom which are just so much fun to ski on and i mean five minute climb like forget it man we're talking like eight minute beasts you know like sneaking through the woods eight minute climb how about like a 45-minute climb? This is another topic. I think there needs to be a part of the sport where we we really can highlight climbers. Um, I don't know if we save the audio um, coming up here or not, or if we'll even play it. Maybe I should just talk about it right now. So Kershaw says, you know, five-minute climb. What about an eight-minute climb? But then later on in the show... He basically says the tour to ski, the, the final climb. It's like, well, that's not even skiing. And he kind of comes back on it. I think he, he's just, you know, humorously bitter almost kind of in a way of, yeah, 44-degree, 44, 44 uh, you know, grades. That's not really climbing. I think I do have to agree on that. And, and you, when you watch it, uh, it's it's actually insane that some of those male skiers, they, they, they don't even have to go into the coach escape, but, but that, that climb really does wreck people. So, um, I, it, for me to just go, Devin's wrong here when he when he mentions that that's not really skiing. I think it, it's a little bit uh, tongue in cheek. So here, here's what I, here's what I, I want to say is first of all, um, kudos to Kershaw saying an eight minute climb. That's awesome. 
But what about the Tour de France? What if the longest climb was an eight-minute climb? They have 45-minute cycling climbs, and those climbs actually determine the Grand Tours. And um, I'm not suggesting that that is where skiing should be at all. I think in the, it has a place probably in the Visma circuits, the marathons, 50Ks and, and above for those courses are a little more tame. They're not going to test you as much technically, but you will have an hour-long climb or a, a 10K climb to start a race. You know, If that's what you want, then, then enter into that realm. Um, but for him to say client that, that the tour de ski thing isn't part of the sport, I think that's limiting because whereas I agree with him, right, it's, it's, it's wrecking athletes at the end. It's just kind of comical almost what people are have to do in the last part of the climb. Cause it's so steep, so brutal. Um, it's sort of on the same, uh, it's good TV though. It is kind of good production. It's dramatic and anyone could blow up. And, and I can't imagine being Jesse Diggins, to be honest, leading that by any, any margin, I don't care if you have a two-and-a-half-minute lead or a four-minute lead going into that final climb. If you blow up, it could all evaporate. So I think there is some drama that that final climb brings. Does, is it real skiing? Is it pure skiing? I, I get the argument that no, not really. But couldn't you make the same argument that when we are whipping around on these sprint courses and we make insanely technical turns, very steep downhills, incredibly high speeds, why, why isn't that not real skiing? When we have uh, the Clabo sprint taking over and, and that is determining races and now it's so much so that way that there's some courses where they get to the top of a, a turn, you know, and they all stop because the slipstream, uh, who has the right positioning on the downhill is so critical. Why isn't that not skiing? My argument here, to, the challenge to Devin basically bringing is, you know, isn't there a brand of skier who's who's maybe a little more Chris Froome-like who would love to have more races determined by a 20-minute climb, by a gradual climb, and gets kind of sick and tired of the uh, fists trying to design courses that are high intensity but look more like a snowboard cross course, you know? Um, now, my take is that we should embrace all of it. We should have cross-country skiing should be trying if to promote itself as a sport with truly no limitations. Here we are. We have a sport where we can do sprint courses that are 1.5 kilometers, and some of them are incredibly technical for the downhill skier. Some of them are going to present strategic elements. Uh, you're going to have to have positioning. And, and that's going to be critical. Some of them are going to test your flat skiing. Dresden, everyone mocks that for being just a, a pathetic course. There's so much flat. It's just dumb. Yeah, sure, it's not pretty. It's not through the woods. It's not up and down hills. It doesn't have a lot there. But but what are you what are you testing? Who's the best on the flats, on the V2, right? Like, I think we need to not go, well, that just is, doesn't really test it. We need to go, this is our sport. We can, we can be very diverse. And I think on that same point, we need to have a few World Cup races where there is is a 20 minute uh 5% climb uh at altitude something that's really going to punish you aerobically and find out who's the person who is the most Jim Walmsley like you know <laughs> or or vice versa maybe courses I know there are courses like this you know Holman Colon's probably the most demanding course all around and so that 50k that 30k to me that almost shows who's the best pure skier in every regard because you have to have grit and endurance, the distance is long enough, the hills and the climbs are uh, a mixture of steep, long, rolling, it kind of has everything, you know, and 
and that's and so if you want to say well that's the truest course fine um but i think we need some courses like that that really you know are kind of all-arounders and uh but but it's okay there should be some races i think i think even you know we should open it up a lot more we should have a we should have a race in cross-country skiing that is um climbing over a mountain pass you know and it's just an uphill not like a tour to ski that that final climb is kind of dumb when they say well that's like that's like our version of that it's like well that is kind of stupid like we should have some race where they go up a more reasonably gradual climb like they do in roller skiing at the um blink festival you know that's even more reasonable something like that where skiers can truly ski but they're going to be climbing for 25 minutes or maybe 50 minutes um and and find that out i think that's cool you know and and if you want to do something where you're where the course is heavy on the downhill maybe it's a net downhill do that too and i think even we should be branching out beyond this i've thought why not in cross-country skiing why don't they have like a track meet format what i mean by that is like couldn't we set up a course and have literally try this out run it like a track meet have a hundred meter dash <laughs> have a 200 meter dash right and, and have it spaced out in the same time schedule if you want to try and do multiple events but maybe do like a 100 meter dash a 200 meter maybe you do a 100 meter skate you know and then it's a 200 meter double pull or 200 meter classic on some portion of a course maybe you literally just have you know a 200 meter uphill or uh, a 400 meter type event something that would be the equivalent of a 400 meter a 400 meter runners event for skiing and have a have a cross country ski event that has 12 to 15 different events you know maybe even more uh have a relay event you could do the version of like what the hurdles would be that could be like your um skiing agility course that they kind of tried to implement i think at the junior junior games with kids where it was sort of ski cross i think that's sweet let's put it in jumps obstacles technical skills over the course of maybe a two or three minute bout that's pretty sweet you know have a downhill race event and and just have an event that's two hours long 15 to 20 events you know and run it just like a track meet i think you would catch a lot of ski fans like that and and tv might enjoy it too it'd be much easier to make a more lovable product on tv and you could highlight all these different skills that we've seen certain skiers really perfect uh for, for example you know there are skiers that have a, an excellent double pull sprint finish. You know, they would be a favorite in the 100 meters double pull sprint, right? And Clabo, if we had an uphill, he's going to be a favorite in that, but maybe he's going to test himself and enter into five different events. You want to see if he can handle the agility, you know, the agility event or a distance event. Um, and, and you're going to, it's a whole new element. You know, skiers choosing what events they want to do is going to be part of it. They can earn points by, um, by doing uh, for every, top three finish they have or whatever and, and instead of just at the end of the day you've got one podium you might have 15 different podiums and then an ultimate podium you know the skier of the meet so to speak and i'm not saying this is how every world cup should be but they could they should space out a couple of them have one of those in november have one of them in like january and one of them maybe in march and have a bunch of different type of events really celebrate that diversity and i know probably the one weakness that is exists in our sport is sort of this purist classical you know because there's so much history and tradition that comes from it i love it i i i love that side of our sport too and i think it's possible to have both of those things coexist where we're all about innovation we're all about the history and tradition and they can they can literally exist 
uh, together. I think when we try and go one or the other and we try and have this friction and battle, that's when people get frustrated. You know, we're, we have the one side of people trying to keep the sport as much as it used to be. We have another side trying to innovate as much as possible. And then we have people saying, well, this is actually cross-country skiing. And then others saying that this is actually cross-country skiing. And that doesn't belong here. And it's, it says who, you know, what, what, where's the, who's the ultimate authority here on, on what constitutes what true skiing is. Um, and I think there's just, unlike other sports, there's really a lot of things you can do with skiing. You could almost, almost endless when you consider the, that you have distance as a variable, you have technique as a variable, and you have course terrain as a variable. So you have three variables you're working with and, and you can interchange them in almost any, and relay, right? You could actually format. So there's really like four different combinations to do. There's thousands of, of different types of events we could be having. And I know that's a little bit off. Devin's not really thinking of that when he's, when he makes the quote that, well, this isn't really skiing, but that's, that's my ultimate beef. There is we shouldn't even bring that attitude into it. You know, I like, even though that's not pure cross country skiing, we see people doing the coaches skate up a 44 degree slope and they're literally climbing up a ski thing and a ski, a downhill ski resort, right? Like it's, it's wild. It is wild. And I think, I think we can, what I'm saying is we could go to the end of that road and go, let's be as wild as possible. And let's also go to the other end of the spectrum and let's be as purest as possible too. Why not just have both elements and, um, and not be so fixated on going, um, this is what true skiing is and we're going to pigeonhole it as this. So it's just the, the sports, the sport, part of the sports history and tradition has been steeped in innovation too. And people constantly innovating from a technique side and the, and then the effects of innovation on a technique side are manufacturers and suppliers and product uh, innovations have had to occur. Stiffer, lighter equipment, faster equipment. Because of that, we had to have uh, are, are in line with grooming innovations and firmer packed, faster trails. And, and it's, it's almost like the hermeneutical spiral <laughs> where these things, like every time you circle back all of these characteristics and, and, um, uh, effects sort of overlap and influence each other. Again, uh, I talked about this in my thesis episode at one point, but basically, right. You have, um, the beginning of, uh, an athlete making an innovation, which forces a manufacturer to adjust their product and make that uh, better, stiffer, lighter, faster, whether it's grooming, whether it's poles, whether it's skis, boots, whatever. And then you have coaches going, well, now that you just made that made up that new technique, you're stressing new muscles in new ways for different uh, periods of time. And so we have to train you differently too. And now that they're trained differently, they're they're, they are enabled to either innovate further or expound upon the innovation they made before. And uh, because of the enabling that the uh, grooming, piston bully grooming and the manufacturers, again, <laughs> that equipment side, it enables them to innovate further and then they have to train differently. And so you have those three things. You've got equipment, you've got athlete innovation, you've got uh, sports science and training, coaching, all working together to move the sport forward into different areas that it wasn't before. And I think on the side of this, we, we let that drive the product you know we let we let athletes drive the product and if they want to invent a new thing they can do it and we also allow for producers the people with the money who are an, allowing athletes to make this their livelihood if they go hey guys we're going to do a track meet style event 
this is what you're going to do. We're going to try it out. I think athletes should be excited because it's still their sport. They're still messing around. Uh, they're still on skis. And, and um, if the product is amazing, viewers love it, and they come rushing to it, you know, that that can be a standard for success too. Now, it would be interesting if, let's just hypothesize you went this route and you had a track meet style cross-country ski event and it blew up. And all of a sudden, this is what everyone wanted to do and watch. Kind of like snowboard cross at the Olympics. That When that first came out in 2002, it was a little bit like, I don't know if this is going to work. And then it was one of the biggest events um, that caught everyone's attention. And in 06 and 10, we were watching um, whoever the curly-haired girl who was who blew two gold medals by falling and showboating in the last jump. I keep forgetting. Uh, Jacob Ellis, Lindsay Jacob Ellis. That's incredible that that name is in my head. <laughs> That's how, how dramatic it was. If you don't know, Lindsay Jacob Ellis was leading twice, I think, in the in the gold medal round of the snowboard cross and pulled a trick and wiped out on the last jump um, to lose a medal. Uh, anyway, what if that blows up? Okay. All of a sudden, the higher-ups are like, all right, this is now cross-country skiing. Every week, we're not doing what we used to do. We're going to do this. Um, ski cross and all this uh, made-for-TV type stuff. That's where I think the athletes push back. Either they go, all right, this is really what the sport was meant to be. Let's do it. Or they go, you know what? I kind of miss the regular 30K. I miss a skiathlon. I miss a 15K interval start. I want a mass start 50K. I want some of those old things too. And 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 you have to have those at that athlete representation going, we understand that these track meet style events make us a ton of uh, money, and so we're willing to kind of do some of those, and we'll embrace that to some degree. But we still need some of some of what we love and came to the sport to do. And uh, Kershaw also he he mentions here in a minute I, I, if we can play that clip, but basically kind of saying like, "Hey, this is cross country skiing. It's not necessarily a good." For TV, I think I think you got to admit that and watch that too. It's like not everything has to be consumer based, and like if 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 a consumer can't enjoy it and have instant gratification, well then it's not worth having on TV. Come on, that's just not true. the The people who love the ten thousand meters in track and field, they're gonna love it no matter what. And you got to put that product out there because we're fans of it. Even if we're a small group, even if the rest of the world thinks it's boring to watch, those who love it love it and really crave it and, and need it. And same thing with skiing. We want to watch Bolshinov all by himself because we want to analyze the classic stride. We want to go uh, put ourselves in his shoes. We want to see him in, uh, in his pain, in his element. We want to try to relate to him because we're out there too on the on trails trying to do the same thing he's doing. This is fascinating for the skier, for the, for the person who loves cross-country skiing. They are fascinated by watching the best in the world challenge themselves, be challenged, be in the hurt bag, be in the same place that we are at when we go out on our trails. We love seeing them screw up on the wax and slipping on the uphills. We like seeing them try to handle a corner and slip and fall. We love seeing the graceful, masterful technique from guys like Clabo that just make it look so easy, and then we can go out and try and replicate it. We want to see that, okay? We don't need to see um, the Bachelor on Monday night for cross country skiing. All right, we don't we don't want to see something that's fakey made for TV. That is ultimately true too. Maybe it's just not a good product, though. I mean, I mean again, uh, I should clarify with him. Like, yeah, but Nordic skiing, but, but but Nordic skiing, Nordic skiing isn't isn't really a good product anyway. Like I like it because I love the sport, but I mean, you have to admit, like we have shorter and shorter attention spans. 
yeah. trying to compete against biathlon, which has their, which has their ducks in a row with the production quality of like one production company that, that does all the races so that there you have some continuity and, and fist, like every single venue is on their own to produce it. You have, like you said, some, the Davos production company for the distance races are filming it on their iPhones or not even like on their like Huawei smartphone. Yeah, it's more just the course itself. And then, too. And, yeah. then and then, going to be pissed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, she, no, she, she, she's done. She got out of it. Okay. She, when, when Griezmann dropped uh, Huawei, that was it for Teresa too. So, uh, <laughs> um, but, but I'm just saying, and then you have like Holman Colon that has like cable cams all over the place and make it look super exciting. So, so, you know what, Fist really, if they want to make the sport more exciting, I think they could really do a lot by just like tightening up the production. It's not a scheme can be exciting. You just have to film it properly. It's not a GIF friendly production value right now, unless you can get um, Trevakin and Belov to like pull something like yeah. that every every race. Like, that was true. a great moment. <laughs> yeah, Devin, how long does it take to get to the top of the Holman Colon course? Oh, that is a beast. Oh, the Holman Colon. The I Holman mean, it takes Colon. me like my twenty five. Oh my god, it's a it's a person. beast, no, man. <laughs> like going up to Frognosetra is yeah. is like that is just. And you know what? That's the best course in the World Cup. It has history, and it's exciting. Fans care. It's filmed properly, and like you said, Jason, you see guys coming undone, and and it's it's just. So there's Kershaw agreeing with me. Holman Colon might be the best. That is a, a wonderful venue. Just an incredible place. I can't imagine living in Oslo, being able to ski there. Um, I did get to visit at one point. I think one of the coolest elements of it is it merges the old heritage, uh, ancient history of cross-country skiing with the new highfalutin stadium. What I mean by that is if you are skiing out in the country, just right out your, your barn door right in Norway, you can hop into the forest there Um and you can start skiing on the network of trails, and eventually, if you follow enough signs and go the right way, you'll end up at the Holman Colon Stadium. Um, and and it's 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 very interesting how it's not like I mean there are places where you can't go, but but there, it's there's no like fenced off. You got to go across this gate and and pay two thousand dollars, or or this is only used for the Olympics type thing, right? It's it's you could literally walk out. Uh, you could be a farmer and walk out onto your trail, start going into the woods, follow this trail, follow that trail. All of a sudden, you're on the old Holman Cullen course. You follow that. You go up a few hills. You're still weaving. The trail is gradually getting bigger. All of a sudden, you're on the Olympic course. You know, And I think that's kind of unique in that area, and, and it provides an incredible experience, obviously, for kids who, who train there. But um, the actual course itself, too, like he's saying, it, it provides the viewer with everything they would want because it challenges the skier. People come undone in, an, in a more... Uh, I'll say, you know, given my last round, a more uh, way that is uh, pure to the or honest to the purity of the original sport or or whatever, you know, they're they're not becoming undone because they're going up a 44 degree slope. They're becoming undone because they've been skiing for for 40 kilometers on challenging terrain. That's just generally unforgiving, Um, pushing themselves aerobically and anaerobically, challenging their technique all that stuff. And then, yeah, like uh, Kershaw's saying, too, they, they do the production right there. Uh, they do. Norway, they know how to do cross-country skiing, no doubt. It, it is definitely differently different as you watch those products on their YouTube channels. In active skiing today. And I don't understand why programs keep someone like that around with what such a troubled history. History that makes you say that? 
Okay, I want to set up this clip. So this is where um, Kershaw go on, goes on his weekly rant about uh, drug buzz. And I got to say, this is something that I have a problem with. I'm a little disappointed. I'll, I'll call this in my bench bureau way. This is excellent journalism, journalisming by Devin Kershaw. Here's the thing is Kershaw is not alone in this. I see this from other retired athletes or current pro athletes in all sports, but especially running, cycling, and skiing where where doping has been kind of, you know, sort of known in there. It's it's sort of like um it is just it's the narrative, right? That you can kind of just say, you can repeat the mantra uh, uh, they're, you know, well, we all know that they were doping and, um, sort of just lump whoever you want into the doping cloud. Uh, and, and, and can you imagine being just, just imagine for a second that you are just a regular old, uh, kid born in Russia. You work really hard. You become a great skier. And let's just say you don't dope. You honestly don't. Right. And you just resist it. You refuse to do it. And you're still the best. You're still the best. And you become the best in the country. You become the best in the world. And you are truly, the reality is that you are clean completely. I think it is very likely that athletes from almost every other nation are just going to throw you into that cloud. They're just going to repeat what other people are saying, the the popular narrative. Uh, Oh, yep, well, the long history of doping. We all know this. We all know this. Um, I don't like that, you know, and I, I, I appreciate how in this show, I can't remember the guest name, but he kind of puts Kershaw out of the fire. Like, what do we know about exact, give me some specifics. And Kershaw does an awful job of get doing that. You know, he just kind of laughs at, well, well, uh, we all know, we all know. So here's him responding to that. But Adolfo, because so many athletes that he's coached have been busted for doping. <laughs> so which, that's Which that. ones? Oh God, the, the, like, we got to go way back in like the, he was the one, Borodovko was the one that. I love it, right? That's that's like the conservative reporter asking Joe Biden, like, you know, you just made a mask mandate and then we just saw you on federal property without a mask four hours later. Like what gives? And uh, uh, well, uh, 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 well, he's just, he's obviously been, he's been, I mean, come on, that's not journalisming. Right. If you're going to make a claim like that, you better back it up. It That's not cool, man. And and you know what? Here's the thing. You might be absolutely right. Kershaw. Kershaw could be totally right. He right. He's been on the World Cup. He's seen stuff that that we haven't seen. That's fair enough. Right. But but that still doesn't mean you get to just blanketly say that without some hard evidence. And we are doing this in society all the time. This is not just a skiing problem, but but it's kind of interesting how we see it even in something as relative to the big issues in the world, kind of as minute as skiing, is this idea that you can just parrot. You can just parrot the lines, right? Uh, the the calling cards that that no one really is going to question. I'm not even going to say what the what these are in in uh, social circles because, you know, they'll probably pull us from the air, the Cedar Skier podcast. But you know what I'm talking about. If you listen enough and you read enough in the media, it's this whole like there there are lines you compare it and you don't have to provide evidence at all to make accusations to people about people. They might be even true. Like I said, it's it's the stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason. They're often true. And so there there are there are cases where we have evidence, and just recently, right, where there's these cover-ups of um, doping that's happened, s- systematic, like, doping <laughs> in Russia, uh, uh, the Eastern Bloc nations. They have this history. I get it. 
okay? Um, I don't know everything about it. I don't. I am not going to claim I know the exact details and extent of it. But that's exactly my point. Is neither do most of the athletes who talk about this. You know, like they haven't gone into some of those legal documents. They weren't always there. They aren't like in relationship with any of these coaches. They don't see what's going on. And so for that, well, we could argue, yeah, is there sort of a presence and a long history of doping in the Eastern Bloc countries and in Russia specifically? Yeah, it appears that that's that's there's pretty good evidence for that. Does that mean Bolshinov is doping for sure? Definitely not. And not that Kershaw said he was. He he didn't make that claim. Uh, but you definitely can tell he's got this skepticism. And furthermore, does that mean everyone that this coach is coaching is still doping, even though maybe he has had athletes who've gotten caught? Kind of goes back to the same thing with Kenya Kenya Jamin, the coach who was coaching uh, Debaba and some of these other athletes. You know, he had like three or four athletes get caught. He had all this sketchy stuff going on in hotel rooms where he was hiding stuff and and got arrested. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, if you are an athlete and you're connected to this coach, you have kind of received the um, the assumption that you are also doping. I think while that's possible and perhaps even likely. It doesn't do our sport any good for athletes to parrot the the uh, calling cards there. Yeah, you know, like, and um, we should, I don't know, like, push for push for good regulation, and and ultimately at the end of the day, like, you gotta just do you, be honest, and be you. You know, like, hold true to your values. If someone else is gonna go out there and cheat, um, like, that's on them. And if they win because of it, ultimately, like, justice is not for this world <laughs> you know like there is a there is an ultimate justice that's going to happen and um, at least that's what i believe too like that 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 what is true and good is going to shake out ultimately in the end even if that doesn't mean on this earth you know i know we're getting really deep now but but i think that attitude should be there as an athlete right like don't fixate yourself so much on these other athletes cheating fixate on being the very best person that you can be and then just shut up you know, and I'm not always so great about this because I think even, you know, the other day I was, I was in a skate race and my skate skis are, oh, they're ancient, you know, they're like eight years old. And I have to scrape out, uh, grooves that have been created by rocks in my skis. Like when I wax my skis, I don't just take a scraper and scrape the base. I have to like take out my other finer tools and like actually scrape out rock scrapes from them. They're that, they're that bad. They're that worn out. I don't have another pair of skis I can go to. So typically when I'm skate skiing, I have an enjoyable time if the conditions are really good. But as soon as the snow kind of becomes just normal, um, I, I'm not getting good glide. And I am definitely someone who will, in my head, and, and I often can't hold it be, hold back, and I'll just say, you know, to people, it's like, I just know my skis aren't aren't that great out there. There there are people out in this field that have faster skis. I can tell. I'm I'm cleaning their clocks on uphills where the glide isn't even as big a deal. Although can't imagine if I had great skis for the uphill too. But I'm catching them, catching everyone, not getting passed by a single soul on these uphills, and I'm passing people, and then I'm getting passed on flats and downhills by skiers who are not not as good as skiers as I am. And, and this has just kind of been the, the thing for me, right? And I make these excuses and I kind of shake my fist in the air like, ah, skiing just can't quite be pure enough. We can't ever really find out who's the best skier. And that's frustrating as a runner coming from this background where there, there isn't really an equal playing field because you have um, the element of equipment. And, uh, and so I, I'm guilty of that. Like I should really just fixate on I'm just going to do the very best I can. That's all I can really worry about anyway. You know, and, and we're heading into a, a, a time now with uh, 
waxing rules and fluoros, we're going to see more of that probably play out, especially in sort of the recreational areas, I'm sure, where where people will, <laughs> pretty good skiers will probably have pretty good waxes, uh, fluoros, and what do you, I mean, I would use those, you know, like when they say, oh, it's, it's, uh, well, I shouldn't say I would use it, right? If the rules say, hey, absolutely not, we're not gonna, we don't want to use this, then you got to be honest and not, but, but you can't really necessarily trust the whole field and, and you're never going to find out. Um, and to be honest, I, I, again, I think your ski selection, ski quality, the base material and the grinds, like that's going to do 80% of the damage anyway. If you have an awful, terrible, crappy ski with a grind that doesn't match the surface, but you put on a really expensive wax job, is that really going to make that much of a difference? I don't think so. Like <laughs> if you would have put the most expensive wax on my old atomics, I don't think it would have made much of a difference. Those bases are just so torn up, you know, they're just catching everything. So, but, but that's kind of to this point is I think every single one of us will be challenged with what I'm sort of challenging Kershaw here and every other elite skier who likes to complain about doping, uh, is that we need to just control what we can control, give our best effort, not make false accusations or make accusations towards people without proof positive, um, and kind of move forward. So I guess I kind of merged a few topics there where, you know, talking about citizens racing and honesty there. And by the way, I was about ready to go to really beat myself down and go, Ryan, quit complaining about ski quality, right? And uh, my classic skis are RCSs, old RCS classic skis. Those are my my dailies, my daily practice skis and my race skis. <laughs> and uh, I had a great classic race a couple of weeks ago in them was fortunate, was able to 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 win a 20K, doing mostly a double pulling in some pretty cold conditions. And I felt like my skis were honest. They weren't really hindering me. I had um, just a basic practice wax on them that day. Nothing fancy. Um, but the, and, the, and the skis aren't terrible, but they're, they're certainly not high performance. I mean, the RCS is from like 2017 or something. Anyway, the other day, I put on a pair of Speedmax Fisher Classic skis, 207 centimeters, and they I did not have any grip wax on them. I was just going to do a double pull workout. And it was, these are these are skis that were uh, given to me from um, a former collegiate skier who's, who's racing at a pretty high level. So a, a very good ski, uh, good grind. They were almost unfair. It was unfair how fast they were. I, I, it was a night and day difference. Kind of the same experience I had when I hopped on this fully carbon bike I just bought. Um, it was, it, you know, when I hopped on this bike, it was almost immediately without any change at all. I was going three to four miles an hour faster on every type of terrain on just a bike ride without giving any, any specific effort. And on these skis, it kind of felt the same way. I mean, on uphills, I always feel great, but it was the downhills and the flats where I'm usually kind of, you know, falling behind people even. And I was doing a, a double pull workout with some with some younger kids who definitely have more spry and power than I do and probably a much better double pull form than I do too. But but we had a uh, the last interval, we did a 5K worth of repeats and last interval we were kind of hanging around and we were going to do a sprint finish on this flat and I was supposed to just kind of stay behind the top guy and then we were going to sprint it out kind of for fun. And in a 100-meter section, I must have put 30 yards on him. And that's not because I'm a way better skier than him, for sure. I mean, I, I had a distinct advantage with my ski speed. It was just absolutely outrageous. Um, and I just wasn't really that fatigued from the workout, partially because of that, you know. And I, I wanted to test my – I knew I was going to test myself after these 5K repeats with the high school team, and I was going to do a, 
uh, one or two longer intervals when I was done a double pull on the mineral belt. And so I did that. I turned around right when we finished the workout and, and headed up the two and a half mile, about 4% average grade. Um, and I was just going to go as hard as I could up and down. So about a five mile interval after a 5k worth of intervals. And I was just going to kind of, you know, tell myself, let's just do this at, you know, whatever 20k pace is maybe. And I ended up just kind of going as fast as I could. I really wish I would have had a clock on that with those speed max skis. It was just a night and day difference of, of quality. And I was, my mind was just blown, especially again, the downhills, you know, and I might have to wax those up and, and lock them up and just save them for my race races. I, you know, they're truly a race ski and, and I haven't noticed the night and day difference. So if that's something coming back to this discussion about doping and things that we can't really control, um, if it makes that much of a difference, which I'm sure in certain events it definitely does, cycling, we know it does in cycling, just because of the nature of the Grand Tours, um, the blood bags, the transfusions, versus racing on bread and water, as the as the Peloton refers to it as, if you're not doping, um, it is, the difference is like a superhuman versus, you know, as an average person. And if that's how it is in skiing, I'm sure it is frustrating. And if you're an athlete, you kind of realize it. Um, but again, the point of this whole rant is you need to do your homework. You can't just laugh and go, well, we all know it. It's true because we all know it. That's not a good reason. Brought up a Dementiev through the junior program back in those days and all the guys surrounding that. To be fair here, he gives um, some background. So after I was all mad at Kershaw, then I was like, well, at least he's got some specific examples and stories. I'll let him keep going. So you have, you have like a whole number of athletes they came through that program. And then when that whole thing blew up, Boda Lovko kind of went into the shadows and he got quote unquote fired, but he didn't get fired, but he, but he was not coaching the Russian national team anymore. And instead coaching, coaching a club, uh, till it blew over. And then guess what he did? He got a leg cough too, of course, leg cough, uh, Dementiev, like in the, in their junior days. And when they came on to the senior ranks, um, all those guys back in there. Those guys, man, I can't believe I forgot his name because he, he won so, it really, a racing camp. This, this show was an enjoyable one to listen to. And now, you know, <laughs> I recorded this podcast, started recording it a couple of weeks ago when the Tudor Ski was still kind of relevant. So if you're listening to our show now, hopefully you've enjoyed some of the topics and discussions that we've had um, kind of branching off of it. Uh, great series of shows done on FasterSkier.com. I really enjoyed it. And I do really enjoy the the Kershaw and Jason Albert dialogue back and forth. I think it's fun. I think the last few episodes have been really great, to be honest. Um, so I, I enjoyed kind of using those as, as platforms to launch. And I apologize for my listeners that I didn't really get this out in the time that was really relevant but um hopefully you know i've spurned some more discussion here